Welcome to That's Illegal, a podcast about international law in the age of nationalism. This podcast is produced by the Global Justice Center, or GJC. The Global Justice Center is a legal human rights nonprofit based in New York City. Our work focuses on moving international humanitarian laws from paper to practice. Our staff consists of lawyers with international law expertise who work regularly with partners at the EU and the UN. Given the recent development of countries turning increasingly nationalistic and the rise in global tensions, we thought it would be a good idea to sit down and talk about the importance of international law, why we have it, and why we should implement it. So every week we're going to take a look at the latest news and break down the legality of what happened using the framework of international law. This week, we will be discussing the ongoing genocide committed by ISIS against the Yazidi. We will be speaking to Sarita Ashraf, an internationally recognized attorney and expert in the field. The discussion will be broken into two parts, the first focusing on the crimes of genocide and the second focusing on the avenues for justice and accountability. This is part one. My name is Sarita Ashraf. I am the former legal analyst on the UN Commission of Inquiry on Syria, and I am the primary author and researcher on the Commission's June 2016 report, They Came to Destroy ISIS Crimes Against the Yazidis. I'm a barrister called to the bars of England, Wales, and Trinidad and Tobago, which is where I'm from, and I specialize in international humanitarian and international criminal law. So I've been counsel before the Special Court for Sierra Leone for many years and before the International Criminal Court, and I've worked in a variety of commissions of inquiry, including most recently the Syria Commission. To start us off, can you just give us a little bit of background on the start of this genocide, who the Yazidi are, and why ISIS targeted them. Sure. Key questions. The Yazidis are a religious group, one of the world's actually oldest religions, and they are based primarily in northern Iraq, but there are also Yazidi communities in Armenia, Turkey, Iran, and now increasingly further afield, such as in Lincoln, Nebraska, and in southern Germany and Stuttgart. And the Yazidis are an indigenous religion to the northern Iraq region, and their beliefs and practice span thousands of years. They are historically persecuted because they are not people of the book, which are the three main monotheistic faiths of Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. They do not have a written book, and their religion has shifted over time as a result, as a direct result of persecution. So at the moment, their religion contains elements of Zoroastrianism, Islam, Christianity, even some of the Judaism, but they are a standalone religion. And I can speak a little bit more in more detail about what the religious beliefs are, but I think what is probably important for people who don't know the Yazidis at all to to know is that there's probably only about a million Yazidis in the world. About 650,000 of them lived in the Sinjar region, which is where ISIS attacked on the 3rd of August 2014. And in their mythology they have a chief angel who represents both good and evil in the world. When viewed through the lens of Christianity or Islam, that figure seems to look like a fallen angel. And for that reason, they have been historically persecuted as being devil worshippers, although that is not what the peacock angel represents to them. So the attacks on the Yazidis by ISIS relate to ISIS's idea to cleanse the region of infidels. But their treatment of the Yazidis is very distinct and differs from their treatment, for example, of the Christian groups, which are also terribly treated, but not in the same way as which the Yazidis are treated. So when most people think about genocide, they think about mass killing. But there are other ways to commit genocide. Can you tell us about the law that defines the crime of genocide? So the crime of genocide was first defined by the Convention for the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, which was passed by the United Nations General Assembly in 1948, immediately following the Holocaust, the end of World War II. And it defines the crime of genocide as being committed 
committed when a person commits a prohibited act with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial or religious group as such. It's very delineated along the t- lines of the protected groups which we've described. So for example, mm. in the Cambodian genocide, which is often referred to as a genocide, but in fact the extraordinary chambers and the courts in Cambodia made it very clear that because many of the killings related to members of political groups or class groups, those wouldn't fall within the definition of genocide. But in trial, the second part of trial two, you have genocide charging in relation to the attacks on Cham Muslims during the Khmer Rouge period and also attacks on the Vietnamese and those are still being litigated so we don't have a judgment yet. As you mentioned like most people think about genocide as being organized mass killings and that's very much steeped in the images of the Holocaust but also for people who may be a bit younger images of the Rwandan genocide and it's often true that genocide is charged and genocide is cited when there have been organized mass killings but that is in fact not the definition of genocide. First of all genocide is primarily a crime of intent rather than scale and the intent is often what transforms a series of conduct into a genocidal act is the intent to destroy in whole or in part a protected group. The ways in which you seek to destroy those groups are also delineated by the Genocide Convention under the five prohibited acts, Mm -hmm. only one of which is killing, in fact. So the first act is is killing members of the group, and that's obviously the most efficient way, in fact, to destroy a group, is Mm -hmm. simply to kill the members, but in no way, and it's quite obvious, the Genocide Convention doesn't require genocide to be committed by killing and envisages a range of conduct. And so the other four acts are are non-killing acts under the Genocide Convention, and they are causing serious bodily and mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group and forcibly transferring children of the group to the other group. In the case of the Yazidi genocide, the commission found that all five of the prohibited acts were being committed by ISIS in their attacks on the Yazidis. You'll notice here when we're discussing the prohibited acts that there isn't actually mention, for example, of sexual violence in these acts. There's actually no mention of sexual violence anywhere in the Genocide Convention at all. It's not very surprising because the Genocide Convention was set out in 1948 where there was in fact generally less discussion about sexual violence in international instruments. It had an all-male drafting team. But even so, the crime of rape, for example, in international law in the whole was only defined in 1998 in the Akesu judgment. And the Akesu judgment, when it comes to understanding how genocides may be perpetrated against different people differently mm-hmm. is very instructive. What Akesu determined was that sexual violence, rape and sexual enslavement and other forms of sexual violence can be genocidal acts when they're carried out with a requisite intent, which is the intent to destroy the group, the protected group in whole or in part. It's become quite a landmark case in understanding how genocides are committed differently against different people. It is clear that ISIS is specifically targeting the Yazidi for genocide. Can we speak a little bit about sure. the history of that and how they became, how they targeted them, how we know it? I'm going to speak a little bit about the attack on the Yazidis and explain how it was we came to the analysis which resulted in the termination of the crime of genocide. And so the facts of the attack are relatively agreed upon. In June 2014, ISIS took over Mosul in northern Iraq. Prior to that, and since June of 2014, they had been in Raqqa in Syria. And those were the two de facto capitals in their so-called caliphate. Lying immediately between those is the region of Sinjar. And so once ISIS took over Mosul in June of 2014, it was quite clear that the Sinjar region was endangered. And there had been numerous attacks on the edges of the Sinjar region. ISIS itself was very clear that it considered the Yazidis to be devil worshippers, that they didn't belong, that they, they couldn't be inside the caliphate, the caliphate had to be purified. None of that was tremendously surprising to the Yazidis. And the Yazidis at the time were protected by the Peshmerga, which is the Iraqi Kurdish forces. On the morning of the attack, the 3rd of August 2014, 
the early hours, ISIS fighters left their bases, both in Iraq, in Mosul, and in Tel Afart, and in other villages a bit further to the south of the Sinjar region, but also from their bases in Syria, and converged on the Sinjar region, which is several hundred square kilometers. It is separated by a hundred kilometer long mountain range called Mount Sinjar, and their villages both to the north and to the south. So we're talking about three to four hundred villages. The majority of them are Yazidis, but there are in fact several different communities that live in those villages, including Sunni Muslim communities. Some of the villages are entirely Yazidi, but the town of Sinjar, for example, was much more mixed. ISIS entered the villages, and what was immediately noticeable is that their conduct on coming into contact with Yazidis was replicated throughout every individual conduct, by which I mean you had people who were hundreds of miles apart on either side of a mountain range, and in every village that ISIS came into, every time they stopped a Yazidi family who was trying to flee on the road, you had an exact pattern of conduct, which was being replicated over and over again. Immediately after ISIS started attacking, really the Yazidis, what happened to them depended on what group they fell into. If they were closest to the Kurdish regions of Iraq and they were able to flee, they fled immediately and became internally displaced people, mainly in the Dahok region, although now increasingly further afield. Another group of Yazidis weren't close enough to get into the Kurdish regions, but were close enough to flee to Mount Sinjar, which has historically been a kind of place of safety, and there are in fact Yazidi temples on Mount Sinjar, and fled up to the top of the mountain. Those Yazidis were immediately encircled by ISIS, who cut off all the water supplies at the bases, towards the bases of the mountain. Hundreds of Yazidis died on the mountain before they were rescued in about 12 to 14 days later. And most of those that died were very young children and infants, simply because we were talking about being on top of a very tall mountain with very little coverage, no water sources in Iraq in August. So the temperature was about 110 degrees Fahrenheit or around 50 degrees Celsius. The reason that the Yazidis who survived were rescued off the mountain is, is really two things. One is that there was a request to start airstrikes which came from the Iraqi government. And the then US President Obama released a statement on the 7th of August of 2014, which is only three to four days after the initial attack, when it was really unclear as to what was happening on the ground. There had been attacked, there were news of killings, there was no reports yet of sexual enslavement. But in his statement, which, which the White House released, he made explicit reference to the risk of genocide occurring. And that it was quite clear the US, in deciding to launch its airstrikes, had an eye to its obligations under the Genocide Convention. On the ground, you had Yazidi men who were trying to, with very light arms, help Kurdish forces coming in from Syria to open up a humanitarian corridor. So you had what the YPG, the People's Protection Units, who were the Syrian Kurdish forces, fighting from inside Syria, creating a humanitarian corridor that was about 12 kilometers long and about 3 to 5 kilometers wide. And through that corridor, they evacuated most of the Yazidis, thousands of Yazidis off the mountain, down into Syria. Some remained in Syria and the others went back into Iraq, into the Kurdish area of Iraq, and again into internally displaced people's camps. For those Yazidis who didn't make it to the mountain and who weren't close enough to the Kurdish regions to flee, they found themselves encircled by ISIS. And the crimes that were committed against them, and in some, many cases are still being committed against them, depended primarily on the sex of the victim, the gender of the victim, and secondarily by the age of the victim. And for that reason, the Yazidi genocide is really instrumental in understanding the role that gender plays in the crime of genocide. I'll talk a little bit about the crimes, and then we'll talk a little bit about the intent, which is what really transforms the acts into genocide 
blacks. ISIS fighters, when they entered the villages or when they stopped Yazidis who were fleeing in their cars or by foot, immediately separated men from women. And by men, I would also include boys, any boy who was over the age of about 12. And the way they determined whether the boys were over 12 or not varied from group to group. In some cases, they looked at height. Sometimes they made the boys lift up their arms and see that they had hair under their arms. But in any case, the men and older boys, say adolescent boys, were separated from the women and girls. In some cases, they were immediately killed. And that sometimes happened in front of the women and girls, usually by being shot in the head. And a couple instances in Sinjar town, you had people whose throats had been cut. In some instances, the women and girls who survived and who were interviewed said that they heard them take the men away and they heard the sounds of gunshots and they saw the ISIS fighters come back with blood stains on them and then never heard from their husbands, sons, brothers, uncles again. In some cases, some of the men and boys were told that they could escape immediate execution by converting to ISIS understanding of Islam and Islam as, as interpreted by ISIS. And some of them did that, of course, because I think that's kind of a very rational choice if someone is pointing a gun to the back of your head. For those men who converted and boys who converted, a slightly more complicated picture arose because there was a question in ISIS ideology as to whether Yazidis could convert. And ISIS were never really comfortable with the idea of Yazidi conversion. So the men and boys who were converted were taken to a series of what are commonly referred to as the Shia villages. Although the Shia community who had lived there had fled in advance of ISIS coming in very wisely. So the villages were empty and the Yazidis who had converted were kept there. In some cases their women and children were also brought back to them, had to convert as well and were kept in these villages. But they were treated really neither fully as Yazidis nor fully as Muslims. While ISIS was trying to figure out what their status was so for example the women didn't cover the women were never made to cover which is unheard of in ISIS territory but that was partly because they didn't want to give them a chance to escape and they didn't want to be able to disguise themselves and so if you're a woman and you're not covered you're not getting very far in ISIS controlled territory no matter what in the case of the men they were forced to go to mosque and pray but then they also weren't allowed to walk around freely and they were taken essentially almost as forced labour out of the villages and made to dig trenches or build buildings or watch sheep and were also not treated as equal Muslims and by the spring of 2015 so about six months later, ISIS obviously reached a decision that these conversions were not real conversions. And it appears that two things have motivated that. First was the fact that several of them escaped or tried to escape. And so they thought, well, you know, you're clearly not dedicated to our ideology if you're trying to run away from us. The second was that the Peshmerga forces started to encroach on ISIS, started to fight back and reclaim territory. And the view of some of the ISIS fighters, as we could discern from comments that they made to Yazidis who held in the villages, was that they suspected Yazidis of calling them or, or and telling them where they were or telling them where to attack or that the Peshmerga were coming to rescue them. Neither of which I think were true, but this was the level of paranoia of ISIS. So in late April, uh, early May 2014, the Yazidis who were then in what were commonly referred to as the Shia villages, those villages were emptied and the men and women were separated at that time and the men and boys were taken away and the women and girls were sold into uh, sexual slavery. It became part of ISIS's system of sexual enslavement and nothing has really been heard of the men and boys at that time. So it's theoretically possible that they could have survived if they had managed to fake their way into ISIS believing that they were ISIS believers but I think it's generally seen that the more likely consequence of that separation is that they were then killed at those dates. For the women and girls they had a very different experience of what happened in the immediate aftermath. After many of the women and girls once they saw their male relatives being taken away and bearing in mind these were scenes of complete terror with you know younger boys trying to cling on to their mothers. In most wars 
always and in most genocide situations most people will know the separation of men and boys as the prelude to something quite terrible and you can see that in the descriptions actually if you look at the description from Rwanda and the tribunals of the ICTR or Srebrenica for example you see the genocide starting with separation of men and boys. For the women and girls they were then taken to a separate holding site in different areas and you had primary holding sites which were in the Sinjar region which were usually quite small and where people from the villages were taken so for example in Kocho village which is where Nadia Murad who's the end goodwill ambassador is from they were all taken to the school initially which is in the village and then taken elsewhere and that was really a grouping process and then from the primary holding site they were taken to secondary holding sites so you had large buses large trucks come in women and children were put onto the trucks and sent to designated holding sites and those holding sites included Badush prison just outside of Mosul a variety of large halls inside Mosul itself such as Galaxy Wedding Hall a large number of schools in Tel Afar and some houses in the Arabian neighborhood of Mosul as well. And it's important that we know a little bit about these designated sites because you're talking about moving thousands of people at this stage. This is not a minor operation of one village. This is 400 villages, thousands of people have been killed, even more have fled, and you now have a captive group of essentially women and young children who you now need to move around. So it was quite clear that this was pre-planned. They already had places for them to go, they knew how to get them there, they had a large number of vehicles, although in some cases they also took the Yazidis' cars themselves and used those cars, and took these women off to the holding sites. It's also relevant that no other group that was living inside the Sinjar region save the Yazidis went through this treatment. So you had, for example, some Sunni Muslims who fled and were allowed to pass through checkpoints who were able to, for example, repeat the Quran. So this was very much focused on the Yazidis. It's also relevant that there were no military objectives in Sinjar at the time. Although the Peshmerga had been there before ISIS arrived, they largely withdrew. There was a few fights, but largely the Peshmerga withdrew. So there was actually no military objective from the target during that time. For the women and girls, once they moved to the secondary holding sites, they were kept there sometimes for a couple of days, sometimes for a bit longer. The majority of them were registered at those holding sites. And by registered, you had members of ISIS fighting forces coming in and sometimes taking their photograph, taking their ages, whether they were married or not, which is basically akin to saying whether they were virgins or not. If they were married, how many children they had. Essentially a system of really trying to determine their desirability and therefore essentially to price them. At the holding sites themselves, it's important to note that we didn't have evidence of mass rapes at the holding sites. You had thousands of women and girls in some holding sites, hundreds in others. And while there were certainly instances of rape at the holding sites, they were seen as being rather surreptitious by young fighters who didn't want their commanders to find out what they were doing. And it's important to understand that because this wasn't an instance of mob violence. This was something that was clearly planned and had a huge amount of actually restraint in it in, in some ways. In that the women, once they had moved into the holding sites, were no longer people to ISIS fighters they were products, they were things with value, and that value is diminished by rape. But also, as a result of being possessions, they are possessed by someone or by some entity. In the case of the Yazidis, they were now the property of the Islamic State. And therefore, unless the Islamic State gave you a woman, or you bought a woman from the Islamic State, or there was some, some process of transfer of property, you can't then take that woman for yourself. And so you had a series where you had thousands of women encircled by relatively young men, junior ISIS fighters, probably in the ages of 20 to 32. And yet, such is the grip of the ISIS ideology on the fighters, and such as the extent of the control of the fighters by the organization, you don't have this mass rape of women. Not out of respect mm -hmm. for the women, but out of respect for the organization's property rights. And those women started to be transferred within a fairly short period of time to different ISIS sites around Iraq and Syria. So for the Syria Commission, the first transfer we noted was around the 17th of August 2014, so two weeks afterwards. Our view was actually they were more likely to be transfers before then, but that's the first one we charted of women being essentially 
bussed into Syria, into Raqqa. And women were bussed all around ISIS-controlled territory, with about 80% of the women being taken for sale to individual ISIS fighters, but 20% being kept for ISIS themselves, sent to military bases. So if you look at the ones that were sent to be sold, so the majority of them were sent to be sold, and they were sold in three ways. The first are slave markets, which I think has received the most attention in the press, although I think actually the majority of them weren't sold in slave markets. But what we saw was by slave markets are essentially a room somewhere where they go in, they're forced to unveil and walk around the room and men bid on them. And there are a series of ISIS documents which are very regulated saying this is the date by which you have to register for the slave market. This is the rules of how the slave market operates. If you're not registered, you can't come. If you bid and you have the winning bid, you have to buy and so on. And we saw a number of women who were initially transferred from the property and property of the Islamic State to being property of ISIS fighters. And they were, because they were spoils of war, you can't be sold to a civilian in ISIS-controlled territory. The ownership of the woman circulates between ISIS fighters. Um, women were generally sold for about, it depended on how old we are, if they were married or not, if they had kids or not, but anywhere between about $300, maybe up to $2,000. It's a bit unclear because a lot of the women weren't exactly present at the sale and don't necessarily know how much was paid for them. This is generally what we understand from some of the online auctions, for example. A second way that you have women being sold is just one-to-one. So ISIS fighters will often come to the holding sites, in some cases would show up at Galaxy Wedding Hall in Mosul and have a look at the women and select the women that they want Later on, you saw the sale of women through online apps such as Telegram, which are encrypted. As women were passed from ISIS person to ISIS person, obviously the prices varied. But you had instances where I spoke to one woman who'd been sold 15 times in a year and a half. So it was a complete acceptance of the right to own another person, to treat the other person as you wanted, which included severe beatings, denial of food, being forced to live in unheated rooms in winter, uh, and of course a tremendous amount of sexual violence and, and rape. And some of this was enshrined in documents, right? So it wasn't just that the conduct was being given down by oral orders. ISIS's central hierarchy was putting together Q&A documents and other types of religious guidance to say, this is how you treat them. These are some of the rituals that are involved. They had rules around contraception. If she might be pregnant, you weren't supposed to do X, Y, Z. So they ritualized a lot of that as well through a central hierarchy. And that was just for Yazidi women. Well, for it was, slaves. For slaves. For slaves. Right. The Yazidi women were treated that way because they weren't people of the book. And if there had been other religious communities in that area that were also not people of the book, they would have been treated as the Yazidis are being treated by ISIS. And their idea of how to treat the Yazidis is not random. It's gleaned from what their so-called religious scholars go into the depths of the Hadith and history and say this is how people treated this group of people in the 7th century, for example, at the time of the Prophet. And in their magazine Dabak, shortly after the Sinjar attack, they published an article called The Revival of Slavery Before the Hour, involving a discussion about whether the Yazidis are apostates that need to be killed immediately or whether they can convert and how you treat them and what's available to them. So for example, for the Christian community, they can pay what's called a Jiza tax and still live as Christians in ISIS-controlled territory, which is not to say that it's very easy to live as a Christian. The Christian community is very small because most of them have fled. They live under constant danger. They're persecuted in ISIS-controlled territory, but it is theoretically possible. And it is actually, there are in fact Christians, very few of them living in ISIS-controlled territory. It is absolutely impossible to be Yazidi and live in ISIS-controlled territory as a Yazidi. And the article even said that upon Judgment Day, one of the things that will be looked at from 
Muslims is them allowing the Yazidi to continue because they're devil worshippers. So even ideas of destruction are very clearly stated by ISIS in these publications. Yeah. So I'm going to just go back to the crimes and then I'll speak to you about why it is actually not as difficult in this case to determine genocide as it had been in earlier genocide. So for the women, you have rape, sexual enslavement, a lot of beatings at the homes and the ISIS fighters, forced to live in conditions which are very difficult to survive. They're also not allowed to sell Yazidis back to their families. Yazidi women have to circulate within the ISIS-controlled fighters, in theory. Um, the reason that so many Yazidi women have been sold back, and I think people often say they've been released, they haven't been released, in fact, they've been sold back, is because although the price for the Yazidi women and girls, because we're talking about really anyone over age nine is being sold, is about, say, 200, 2,000 internally, with that price always going down, of course. Um, when you sell them back to their families, they'll pay, you know, anywhere between 10000 and 40000 US dollars to retrieve their family members from the men who are raping them and sexually enslaving them. So you have a situation where Yazidi families are essentially going broke by selling everything they have to buy back their female relatives and, and children and some of the younger children if they're still there. So that's why we have so many Yazidi women being released. And it's also important to note how regimented the system is. There's one account in an interview that I constantly think of, which is I was interviewing the this woman and she had been sold several times. In this particular time, the man who owned her, who'd bought her at the time, had gone off to fight. And so he left her with his friend because Yazidi women, they can't go out in the streets alone, they're not covered. So if he'd left her in the house alone, she would have eventually starved. So he gave her to his friend, who was also an ISIS fighter, to take care of her while he went off to battle. And during the time that he went off to battle, he was killed. And so at this time, my assumption, or this wasn't the question that I asked, but my assumption was that his friend had kept her and that his friend had then continued with the abuse that she had suffered. And she went, no, 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 I didn't stay with his friend and his friend didn't do anything to me because I didn't belong to his friend because he died intestate. So his friend could only have kept me if he had made a will and so his friend inherited me or if he'd given to me to his friend as a gift but he only gave me to his friend for safekeeping and so the friend didn't do anything to me while I was in the house even though we were in the house alone but when we realised that her owner for lack of a better word had died the other ISIS fighter who had been entrusted with her relative care then took her to the local wali, the local authority and said she has now reverted to being property of the Islamic State so you're now in charge of reselling her and that is exactly how disturbing but also highly regulated and bureaucratic in a way this system is. For many of the women of course they're profoundly traumatized in a way that I think is probably difficult to put into words for a lawyer. In relation to other groups, so you had children, girls who are below the age of nine and boys who are below the age of seven are sold with their mothers as a package. ISIS doesn't divide them. So if you're a girl under the age of nine, a boy under the age of seven, you travel around, you are bought and sold with your mother. And of course, those children are also severely traumatized because they are in houses where sometimes they're beaten, they're shouted at. Sometimes they live with the families of ISIS fighters and those families mistreat them. The older children, are some of them are really aware of the violence that their mother is suffering. And we saw a lot of really traumatized children when we were doing the interviews for the report. For girls over the age of nine, once they're nine, they're taken from their mothers and sold off in the system of sexual enslavement. For boys who are over the age of seven, they're also taken from their mothers. So even from the beginning, if you were under about 12, so you weren't taken off with your father and, and 
executed and you were above the age of seven, you were taken from your mother at the holding sites and then sent off to an ISIS training camp. It's important to note that these training camps have both Sunni Muslim boys and Yazidi boys. And so they function at two levels. The first level is that on a general level, they meet ISIS's needs for continual recruitments and for the continuation of its caliphate through the indoctrination of children, largely boys. That is true whether the boys come from are taken from a Sunni Muslim family by force or taken from the Yazidis from Sinjar and, and taken off the bases. But on another level, which is specifically directed towards the Yazidis alone, it's a process of removing them from their culture, from their families, of erasing their identity of Yazidis and indoctrinating them in ISIS-inspired understanding of the world. So their Yazidi names are taken from them, they are given Muslim names, they're forced to go to ideology classes, they're taught that Yazidis are unclean and dirty, that they are people who worship stones, and you have some of the children, it's quite difficult to get the boys back who've gone to the training camps because there is no market to sell them back because they never become property of individual fighters they remain property of the Islamic State as an entity and the Islamic State doesn't sell Yazidis back so it's quite difficult but where some boys have been brought back have been rescued or have been sold back in a particular circumstances you have boys who really suffer the after effects of indoctrination by ISIS fighters including kind of a preoccupation with looking at battles being shown of videos of beheadings have tendency towards violence so there's also a tremendous problem within the Yazidi community now and this is also where it's important that the Yazidi don't have a book. It's an oral tradition, mm. right? Everything is passed down through the community, through familiar relations. So when you separate the boys and you take them through this process, even if they are released, it is difficult to then continue to pass it on, especially as the Yazidi community, as a result of this genocide, has grown smaller and smaller. And so that's a very important part when we think about the genocide, is also why is it that keeping the boys and keeping them away from the teachings and the community really makes a difference here is there's no written book there's no nothing and to speak about all these acts which are you know may constitute war crimes may constitute crimes against why they also constitute genocide comes from the intent the theory behind it which drove isis to commit these acts in these particular ways and in most instances actually one of the most tricky things for lawyers and later for courts to do is to work out whether there is an intent to destroy because people often say oh they were a political enemy or they were fighting back and this is just what happens in war and it was all chaotic and so on in the case of isis isis has never really shown any desire to refrain or hide its conduct whatsoever. It has been very clear and has stated on multiple times that it doesn't believe the Yazidis have the right to exist. It doesn't believe Yazidism has the right to exist. That they are an impure force within the region and they need to be destroyed for the betterment of everyone, but in particular the caliphate, the so-called caliphate. And so ISIS is really clear about its conduct and why it's doing it. And I think it's also true that ISIS conduct doesn't come out of nowhere. As I said at the beginning, the Yazidis have historically been persecuted. They are often known as being devil worshippers in the communities that they are in. They're regarded with suspicion. Often they have fewer educational advantages, which is very relevant actually when you have a situation where a lot of men have been killed and the majority of the population is now female who haven't spent a lot of time in school and haven't worked. The impact of the genocide reverberates through the social structures in which it takes place. So for ISIS, they have been unabashed in their voicing of the intent to destroy the Yazidis. And it's made it much what is normally you have to look through circumstantial evidence, you have to infer it from conduct. With ISIS, there's a lot of very straightforward statements. You mentioned contraception, and so can we talk a little bit about the use of forced pregnancy and how they're treating the Yazidi women yeah. in terms of births? So there are a variety of ISIS rules around the 
sexual enslavement, the process, the mechanisms by which sexual enslavement is regulated. And there are a couple of different rules, such as, you know, you can't sell between brothers. You can't sell when the woman is pregnant. So you shouldn't really sell a woman for a month to see if whether she's pregnant or not. Most of those rules, actually, once you start selling them from the entity to the fighters, are broken. And so when it comes to contraception, it's quite a mixed picture. It's quite clear that some ISIS fighters are using contraception, including occasionally condoms, but a lot of forced injections and forced pill taking for the women, and sometimes not so forced. But that's really done because they don't want to lower the resale price of the woman because they want if she's pregnant, you're not supposed to sell her anyway. But if you do sell her, it'll be at a much lower price. But in the ISIS article in Davok magazine, there's a specific reference to the slave giving birth to her master. And the idea that if she gets pregnant, the baby who is born will be Isis and therefore the master of the woman who is Yazidi. And there has been some, in the Isis as an organization rather than the individual fighters, there's definitely a movement towards saying this will give an opportunity for more adherence to Isis to be born. But I would be very reluctant to say that there's any sort of program either around forced contraception or around forced pregnancies. Mm only because the behaviour of the fighters once they own the woman has been so mixed. I think what is really key for ISIS is that the women stay within ISIS control. Like, they live in ISIS control and eventually they will die in ISIS control. And ISIS has shown a real willingness to try and hunt down fighters who are then selling them back to their families. And that in itself is punishable by death in ISIS controlled territory. Well, and one other thing I think with respect to the pregnancies is, yes, in one context they may become ISIS fighters, but in another context, because of the patrilineal structure of the Yazidi religion, if both parents aren't Yazidi, the child can't be Yazidi. And so even if the mother and the child are rescued, that child in the religion is not considered Yazidi. So they've already, in that way, destroyed the possibility of having a future generation of Yazidi children. And that's, in fact, the way that we found that the fourth limb of the prohibited acts was committed, because Mm -hmm. the fourth limb is preventing births within the group. And during the Holocaust, actually, there was a lot of forced sterilization of Jewish women. That hasn't occurred here. But what we saw was, first, the separation of Yazidi men and Yazidi women, bearing in mind that both parents have to Yazidi, as Akilah said, for the child to be Yazidi. So the very act of separating the men from the women is already enough to fulfill that plank of that prohibited act. But that separation is made permanent by killing. But you also now have a situation where the woman is now impregnated by someone from another group so that, and that child will not be Yazidi. But in fact, we also made a comment that the extent and the severity of the sexual violence, the dehumanizing aspect of being treated as a property to be sold and loaned and inherited, which is, I think, an extra layer of trauma aside from just the rapes, which are by themselves horrifically traumatic, has meant that some women really don't want to have children. They don't want to enter into relationships with men. They don't want to have that in their lives. And so you actually, it's one way of also preventing births in the group is to traumatize the women so much to psychologically and physically damage them to the extent where they do not want to have children and they don't want to rear children and they don't want to be in a relationship with men. Thank you for joining us and join us next week for more discussion with Sarita Ashraf on the Yazidi genocide and avenues for justice and accountability. 